back to the Harvard Center for International Development's weekly speaking series podcast. My name is Rohan Sandhu, and I am an MBAE student at the Harvard Kennedy School. This week, we are joined by Jenny Bellman Robinson and Molly Curtis, both at the Center for Universal Education at the Brookings Institution. I'm talking with Jenny and Molly after their appearance in the CIE speaker series at the Harvard Kennedy School on November 20th, 2020. Jenny, Molly, thank you for joining us today. As a starting point, tell us a little bit about the Millions Learning uh, Real-Time Scaling Labs project. What was the motivation to set this up? What contexts and countries are you working in? And how did you choose the innovations you decided to study? Great. Well, thank you so much, Rohan, and the Center for International Development for having Molly and I on this podcast today. If you might allow me to go a little bit further back in time to the genesis of the Real-Time Scaling Labs, At the Center for Universal Education at the Brookings Institution, we started undertaking some research on scaling and education back in 2014. And the genesis of that was really in the lead up to the sustainable development goals. We were hoping that there would be an ambitious education goal, a learning agenda as part of the sustainable development goals. And we knew that attention, if that was the case, attention would quickly shift to from what is it that we want to achieve to how do we achieve it? And so we took a page out of the health and agriculture, um, food security, other playbook about could we point to large scale efforts to improve children's learning around the world? And is there something we could learn from that? So that was really became the impetus for a report that we worked on at CUE known as Millions Learning. So we published that report back in 2016, having looked across a range of different cases around the world of where we've seen large scale, again, improvements in children's access and learning outcomes. And we put forward a framework for thinking about scaling in global education, 14 core ingredients or key drivers and a framework for thinking about scaling in education. As we were sharing that report and the findings, what we quickly came to realize is while we certainly need to continue to build the evidence base around scaling and systems change and systems transformation in education, we also need to really think deeply about how do we apply these insights into practice? How do we move beyond identifying key drivers such as we know leaders and champions at all levels are critically important, for example, in scaling education to what does this really look like in particular countries in a particular context? What are some of the real challenges that are confronted? How have they been addressed and overcome? How have leaders' engagements been sustained? So that's a long way to answer your question, Rohan, that that really became the backdrop to developing the real-time scaling labs, where we said, instead of doing retrospective case studies and drawing out some principles and frameworks, can we accompany initiatives in countries that are in the process of scaling partnering directly with local institutions so that we are together learning alongside and that we're generating that learning not only to feed directly back into those initiatives to hopefully strengthen and support their scaling efforts, but that we can also draw out some transferable lessons and insights that we think could be useful to other countries, whether it's policymakers or practitioners or funders that are also thinking about how do we um, increase learning opportunities for many more children. Molly, I don't know anything you might want to add. 
Sure, maybe I can touch on quickly where we currently have scaling labs and, and sort of, as, as you asked about the, the process for, for selecting our partners. So currently we have, have scaling labs in, in five countries. Jordan partnering with the NGO INJAZ, focused on their financial education program. In Tanzania, working with CAMFED on their learner guide program. In Botswana, partnering with Young Love on their scaling teaching at the right level. And in, in Cote d'Ivoire, actually also focusing on, on teaching at the right level or the, the local adaptation, which is called PEC, with transforming education in cocoa communities. And then lastly, in the Philippines with the Fit Ed and the Teacher Professional Development at Scale Coalition. And in terms of how we selected these partners, you know, I think we were really looking to balance both comparability and the development of a strong research base with also the realities of where there exists demand and, and partners for aligned interests. So really our, our first criteria was that be a demand-driven process where there was a strong interest from a local partner. We um, sort of an aligned vision. We definitely didn't want to sort of sell this to anyone, but, but have partners who were really looking to do this process with us. We also looked for places where there's a strategic timing for scaling, where there might be a reform process underway or some, some other catalyst to leverage. Of course, we were interested in the evidence of the effectiveness of the intervention, You know, not interested in sort of empty scale or scaling without impact. Also looking for opportunities where there already was some political will and, and buy-in from government partners. It differs across the, the different labs, but in, but in each case there is you know, sort of existing engagement with the government. And then also looking for opportunities where the, the scaling was focused on, on addressing a critical issue in education that's being faced in many countries. So there'd be lessons we could learn that we might extrapolate that might be transferable to a broader audience. And then we also really deliberately sought diversity across the cohort, you know, both in terms of geographic location, what type of education intervention they're focusing on. You know, some are early childhood, some are primary school, secondary school, teacher training, but also the pathway they're taking to scaling and the approach and, and sort of how far along they're in the scaling process and the role of different state and non-state actors engaged in scaling, really with the idea that sort of to test the hypothesis that in spite of these diverse contexts and these diverse programs, that really there'd be a, a common challenges emerging that cut across these different partners and institutions, and there'd be really opportunity for, for learning across them, learning and sharing about scaling. Thank you. I definitely want to dive in deeper into some of the learnings and the challenges that you spoke about. But before that, I actually have two follow-up questions on, you know, just the process of these, of these scaling labs. The first, you know, is this is really a paradigm shift in the way research is typically done, you know, from the retrospective to, you know, being more advisory in real time. And in many ways, this represents a new kind of project for a think tank like Brookings to be working on. How have you as researchers adapted to this new action research project format? What have some of the challenges been within, you know, a research organization to make this happen? It's a great question, Rohan. And you're right. I would say the approach we've taken is perhaps not the traditional think tank research approach. We did quite a bit of research as we were designing the real-time scaling labs to look at what else has been tried in the space of really trying to bring closer together research and practice. Because we recognize this is a challenge that's not unique to Brookings, not unique to education. It's a challenge across the board that, you know, how do you really translate evidence into improved policy and practice? And, and what can we learn from what's been tried? 
And we drew quite a bit of inspiration, I would say, from the discipline of improvement science and really thinking about how do we develop a collective learning approach, knowing that the more one is involved in experiential learning and actually rolling up one's sleeves and doing it, the more likely one is actually to take it up and take it forward. And so, you know, really building on a mantra from improvement science that is really how do we move beyond this false dichotomy that there are those who sort of know and there are those that do, but really bringing the doing and knowing closer together. So that was really, I think, the charge that we had ahead of ourselves and that we were excited to take up. Your question of, so what challenges has that shown? You know, there've been a lot to be completely frank and honest with you. Um, It's a real balancing act, I would say, from thinking about the learning objective that we have and sort of more maybe traditional sort of research approach and methods there to the support element and thinking about the kind of capacity strengthening that one might provide. And I too, again, I would argue are not at odds, but in fact, you know, it, it, it does require, I think, an ongoing sort of recalibration and balancing act to make sure that we're continuing to build the evidence base and, and drawing insights from data and from new information, and that that in turn is feeding directly into opportunities to strengthen capacity. The last thing I'll say is I think we've also tried to be very honest and clear about where Brookings sort of mandate and footprint ends and where we can draw on the good experiences and expertise of others. So whether that's those who are actually boots on the ground and live in countries, we've been very clear that they should be part and parcel not only of identifying what are the key questions that need to be answered involved in the research process, but certainly involved in the capacity strengthening and sort of technical assistance side of things. So that's just to name a a challenge. The the other thing I would add is, as I mentioned, you know, we started this by really wanting it to be demand driven where there was alignment with a local partner. And in in trying to always strike this balance, we've really tried to also bring that that ethos in as well to think about, we don't want it to be an extractive exercise where we're just really trying to get all the data from our partners and and take it back to Brookings and, and do the analysis we need, but we really first and foremost, want it to be useful to the ongoing work of our partners, trusting that if, if the research we're doing it is useful to their scaling efforts, that will also you know, help us get the information we need. So we've put a lot of focus on, on ensuring that we're not just sort of you know, flies on the wall, you know, just getting the data we need, but really you know, constantly recalibrating and thinking, how does this support the, the work they're doing and, and making progress towards their scaling goals? I think it's a lot of, in some ways, of putting into practice some of the principles that we preach, right? So we talk about the need to be problem-driven, not coming to, you know, a, a challenge with a preconceived solution, but really thinking about what is the root cause of the challenge and then what could potentially address that in the case, say, of education. Well, I think a corollary to that in the work that we're doing is not saying, huh, these are really interesting research questions that we have as as Molly or as CUE or as Brookings, but to Molly's good point, what are those questions that are fundamental to governments, to civil society, to whomever we think is the actor responsible for taking up an initiative, and then how do we best go about addressing and crowding in expertise and information and support to address those concerns? Thank you. Uh, to Molly's point on, you know, a lot of your partnerships are predicated in, you know, 
very strong, you know, local local groups with local expertise. How do you balance, you know, the local expertise that these partner NGOs and governments bring in with the global expertise that you're bringing in? There's a lot of conversation in development about insiders and outsiders working, especially in developing countries. Where do you see your role and when, you know, as far as the advisory goes? I have certainly seen our role in many ways as a sort of behind the scenes supportive role. Again, I think our local partners are by far and away the experts on these initiatives, certainly in terms of the, the challenges, the urgency of the need, the context. And I think where we can hopefully play a role and be useful is where after they've identified, again, the challenges, the problems, the questions, we can either crowd in existing evidence that, that, that might be relevant, perhaps from other contexts, and or think about what might be some approaches or methods that we might gather primary information data that could help to inform and address those, those questions and challenges. So certainly see ourselves as sort of in that, that backseat supporting role. I now want to dive in a little more into you know, the learnings you've had in terms of you know, what works and what doesn't in system-wide change and scaling and so on. In a recent paper, you share some of the learnings on what works and what doesn't in the scaling process. One of these insights that stood out for me was about thinking in terms of systems and not projects. You write that you know, this includes developing targets and metrics that measure not only people reach, but also the depth of change tracking progress in more intangible areas such as capacity institutionalization or government ownership and partnerships. This is certainly a complex undertaking. How can organizations in the education sector, which are very often cash-strapped NGOs, early state social enterprises, build the capabilities to do this? Yeah, I think absolutely. They are more challenging elements of, of the scaling process to measure and track, but I think we think the being more challenging doesn't sort of take away from the, the importance of, of, the, of tracking that progress as part of the, the scaling process. So as Jenny said, within the labs, we've been thinking about this a lot and we're currently in the process of working on a, a concrete tool to track institutionalization progress of a particular initiative or elements of an initiative. So if the end goal is really for the, the government to, to take up the initiative and eventually to sort of deliver and, and finance it fully at national scale, how do we track progress of that institutionalization across oh, you know, different elements of the education system, different sort of building blocks. And so we, we've been in the process of developing a tool, of course, drawing from great work done by others. And the next step is really for our, our real-time scaling lab partners to, to pilot it so we can continue to refine the tool before hopefully publishing an initial version um, in, the, in the spring. And I think in some ways that's maybe illustrative of how we're thinking about this question that you raised, Rohan, about it's much more challenging to, to consider tracking these more tangible aspects, intangible rather, sorry, aspects of, of scaling. Um, and a big drive within the Real-Time Scaling Lab is to think about what types of resources or guidance can we draw from the experience that could be directly useful to those who are doing the scaling? So not to say, how can we continue to work with external groups, with think tanks, with, with consultants? I mean, that will certainly probably continue to play some roles, but really what's the type of resources or guidance that could be useful directly to those who are doing the scaling? And so the tool that Molly talked about, we hope will be an example where over time, a group, an institution, 
can, can track what that progress looks like in terms of getting an initiative further embedded into a larger system. So that's really been, been I think, a driving force behind the real-time scaling labs. Yeah, just to say an element I forgot to add is, is hoping that the tool is, of course, not just used for sort of academic purposes or, or tracking for its own sake or to reach a certain score, but really as a way to identify priority areas where it's important to focus to make progress in institutionalization and then really spur action and then sort of come back periodically and say, have we made progress where we want to? If not, what, what's the next step? If we have, what do we do after that? So really using it more, hopefully, as a dynamic planning tool as part of the scaling process rather than just a way to collect data. You also state the importance of an adaptive approach, noting two categories of adaptation, one you know, to the model itself and then the other to the scaling approach and strategy. Tell us a little bit about the challenges this entails and how the different labs you've been working with have you know, navigated this, especially in the context of uh, 2020 when you know, COVID-19 has probably thrown so many initial plans off. Absolutely. This notion of adaptation is central to when one thinks about scaling, that it's very clear, I think, from various experiences, from literature, from evidence, that scaling is not this linear project where you go from pilot to larger scale to national scale. But as, as we and many others talk about, it's much more of the cyclical process, right? Of experimenting, of learning, of shifting, of course correcting. It might be expanding, it might be contracting. You know, it's this very sort of cyclical and iterative process, if you will. And so what that entails is the need to be adaptive and agile and flexible. I, I think that is probably pretty well accepted. I don't know if many would take issue with that. The question becomes, well, sure, that's great. We're in agreement, but you know, we're talking about these huge bureaucracies and, and systems that are not necessarily known for being flexible and agile and, and necessarily quickly responsive. So what does that mean and what does that look like? And so that's been, I think, a big part of the scaling labs pre-2020 was to think about how do you try to embed a continuous learning approach, for example, so that you really are building into the process, whether it's a reform process, a policy that's being implemented, a program that's being scaled, deliberate moments for pausing and reflection to say, okay, what is the data telling us? What new insights are emerging? What changes have happened to the broader landscape that we need to consider? And what does that then mean for our initiative, for our reform, for our policy, for our program? Again, fast forward to today, that just has become absolutely essential. I think this notion of being adaptive and flexible is absolutely right on the forefront. And in some ways there's been more space to be able to do so because countries around the world, education systems are scrambling, right? To respond to say, how do we, ensure any type of learning continuity in the face of this, of this crisis. And so I think that there's a lot that we're both able to draw from the sort of scaling science, if you will, and apply to this current reality we're facing, as well as what I hope is that one of the silver linings coming out of this might be some really rich learning on how we do 
uh, we are able, and systems in particular at large scale have been able to very quickly adapt and adjust um, and hopefully alongside generate enough learning that we're able to build on to build on the experience. I don't know, Molly, if you want to maybe even give the example of our colleagues in Botswana, Young Love, and the work they're doing with the Ministry of Education and how they're sort of responding in real time to, to the remedial education approach that they've been working on. Sure. I was also going to say, first of all, that we had a colleague in, in this Young Lab in Cote d'Ivoire who I think phrased it really well, that while COVID is certainly an extreme example and was not in itself expected, you know, there's always going to be a crisis or a shock in the system or a change in the enabling environment. And the scaling process and the scaling strategy has to respond to that. And so this is certainly an extreme example, but this is you know, part and parcel of the scaling process. And it's important to, to plan for that and be aware of that as, as, as just sort of what is required. So in terms of Botswana, our partners, Young Love, who are working with the Ministry of Basic Education and UNICEF and others to scale teaching at the right level in, in classrooms for grades three through five across the country, have been working closely to you know, offer continuity of learning when schools are, were shut down. And so they were able to pivot to look at some radio as well and television and, and SMS and phone-based learning options to continue education. And so right before the schools closed, they were able to gather 10,000 uh, phone numbers, I believe, for parents or caregivers of children that they were already working with in schools and to implement a SMS and, and phone call based approach to test out how to continue delivering elements of teaching at the right level. So for some students, this meant, you know, sending math problem by SMS once a week that they could work on with their parents and um, continue learning that way. With another group of students, it was this, these SMSs with a follow-up phone call with a facilitator where they would work through the problem together. And they're actually able to conduct an, an study of the results and be sort of some of the first with results about how this, you know, these new approaches to learning in the crisis are, are working out and found a significant impact of continuing to deliver education via telephone. And so even though, you know, schools in Botswana will be reopening, they're looking at how, you know, in the future to continue some of these distance learning approaches on the side, since they've seen such, such great success at, at helping children maintain learning and, and continue learning outside of the classroom and with support from, from parents and caregivers in a way that they weren't engaged in maybe before. Thank you, that's a very inspiring case. Finally, you know, continuing with the disruptions COVID-19 has caused in the education sector, your colleagues at CUE, uh, Rebecca Winthrop and uh, Emiliano Vegas have written a recent paper on how, you know, COVID has really changed the way we look at the education system with powered up schools at the center. I'm wondering, you know, what does this change mean for the way you look at the role of innovations and where do these innovations really fit in into these powered up schools? You know, it's interesting. I often think about how one defines innovations and oftentimes people think of innovations as something new and perhaps it's not the right definition, but inadvertently we think about sort of the sexy, shiny new technological gadget. And in many ways for me, the global pandemic has shown that there's been some tried and true approaches that actually could be resurfaced and really built upon, as well as thinking, you know, innovatively and thinking about what else might be new. So for example, in many of these countries, particularly in low resource environments, turning to radio has been particularly effective, as well as, as Molly spoke about, using telephones and SMS technology. You know, 
also think about the critical role that parents and caregivers have played. So certainly for me, that's been perhaps an innovation, if you will, where parents and caregivers have always existed, but perhaps their engagement has been much less when it comes to thinking about the role that they play in educating children. So I think in some ways to answer your question, Rohan, it's about expanding how we think about innovations, certainly sort of experimental what's on the horizon, very forward looking, but also not forgetting to think about well, what is it that we have tried before and that has worked and perhaps at smaller scale and we could be testing and iterating and building upon at a larger scale rather than throwing that out and just going with sort of what's new. And I certainly share, I think the belief or that my colleagues, um, Rebecca Winthrop and others at CUE, that I think one of the silver linings from this pandemic will come coming out is really looking at the critical role that parents and give, caregivers do and certainly can play going forward in children's learning. I think the challenge will just be to ensure that what's the appropriate role with the right support rather than assuming that therefore the burden gets shifted to parents and caregivers who we know are also incredibly busy as well. But I think there's a real, real opportunity there in terms of an innovation. I think we've, we've also been thinking a lot about there's so much experimentation and adaptation right now that's happening that's exciting, but also, of course, the need to gather data and look at, look at the results of that and ensure we're, we're learning from what works and what isn't work, working so that we can use that information in the future. We certainly don't want to rush ahead too fast with innovation without um, you know, thinking about impact and quality, but also harness this experimentation to see what can be brought forward, sort of to build back better, as people have been saying, in the future. Thank you once again, Jenny and Molly, for taking out time to talk with us today. You can learn more about the Center for Universal Education at the Brookings website, brookings.edu. You can learn more about the Center for International Development and CID's research events and upcoming speaker series lectures at cid.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening in, and we'll see you back next week.